0: You can lock like my body, can't trap my mind, not will ever be free Okay, free the Black Panthers, ftbp Stand for free the Black Panthers And up the black police Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles But we still here, then the bill here, up Cointel Pro Show. They got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck oh, me, i mad. Free the Black Panthers, F-E-B-P, stand for Free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free, okay. Free the Black Panthers, F-E-B-P, stand for Free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police. We infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here, In a bill here, up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the counselor, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock upped up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated. Damn Unify or die. nvpp.org. we never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
1: is also a barrister and a founding member at Matrix Chambers and the president of the English chapter of the organization Pen, which works to defend and celebrate free expression. In addition to his academic work and publications, Professor Sands maintains an extensive and accomplished practice in general international law and has appeared before many international courts, including the International Court of Justice, the European Court of Justice, the World Trade Organization dispute settlement system, the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, the International Criminal Court, and the Special Court for Sierra Leone, among others. I could say much more about Professor Sands, but I do not want to keep you any longer from this very special address. Professor Sands,
2: thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Chantal, and thank you, Judge Robinson, and thank you, the American Society and all the organizers of this really important conference, which I'm happy and very privileged to be a part of. I've been asked to address contemporary systemic racism as a legacy of historic enslavement and the extent to which it breaches international law and gives rise to a right to reparations. We all know these are complex and painful matters and they touch each and every one of us. And they give rise, I think, to a personal responsibility to engage. I've been, as Chantal mentioned, very privileged to be involved in matters of international law across four decades now. I have to say on the basis of my own observations and experience, I have come to the view that racism against black people has been and continues to be endemic in the current international order. I see that, for example, on the website of the International Criminal Court, all 30 cases of indictments involve black men from Africa, a group of human beings who do not have a monopoly on international crime. I see it amongst my colleagues in legal practice. So few of my co-counsel in international litigation are black. Across 15 years as an arbitrator in dozens of investor state disputes involving different countries, And I've got to say, I say this with a deep sense of embarrassment. I have never once sat with a co-arbitrator who is black. While I'm not in a position to say with any degree of certainty how this situation has come to be, intuitively, it seems to me that it cannot be entirely disconnected from the legacy of enslavement. Let me go even further. It's really only relatively recently that I have truly started to reflect on all these matters. I grew up in a country, Britain, in which my education bypassed matters of slavery, colonialism and race, more or less entirely. As a schoolboy, I remained unaware of such matters. Classes at school offered a particular account of British colonialism. Preparing this lecture in our attic, I found my old school history book from 1973 and read once again the chapter, which was wistfully entitled Sunset on the Empires. On India, for example, We were taught about Britain's last viceroy, a remarkable man, the book told us, a man who compared favorably to the new leadership of Mahatma Gandhi. And I kid you not, and I quote, wizened, bony, almost monkey-like, a leader with cheap spectacles, a vegetarian, a pacifist. On the end of empire, we were taught the relationship between colonizer and colonized could be understood as being akin to the relationship of parent and child. One in which the parent never admits that the child is quite grown up the child rebelliously insists that it is the child usually gets its way in the end and learns sometimes painfully by its own mistakes that's a quotation not me speaking matters did not improve markedly at university i now realize with the benefit of hindsight my teachers of international law were very marvelous in many ways but they were all white men some had been retained to give advice to newly independent countries of Africa, somehow leaving the suggestion that this might be an aspect of our social function going forward if we enter the world of international law. When did the scales really start to fall from my eyes? It was a gradual process, but it's only relatively recently that I think I've come fully to see the world as it really is. In 2010, I was retained to advise the government of Mauritius on litigation to recover a part of its territory, the Chagos Archipelago, that it considered to have been unlawfully dismembered by the British government in violation of the principles of self-determination and territorial integrity. In the course of that engagement, I learned firsthand the fate of a community known as the Trigossians, the 2,000 or so inhabitants of the islands, many of whom were descendants of enslaved people brought in from Mozambique and other parts of Africa. Every single one of them was removed from their homes in their islands between 1968 and 1973, and they were transported to Mauritius, the Seychelles, or Crawley, a town on the southern outskirts of London. The matter reached the International Court of Justice a couple of years ago, following a request for an advisory opinion from the General Assembly on whether the decolonization of Mauritius had been completed in accordance with international law. In preparing our arguments for the court, the oral hearings, we did think it was of the utmost importance that the judges must hear directly from the Chagossians. And so witness testimony was provided by Madame Lisby-Élysée. She was 20 years old when she was forcibly removed from her home and island in the spring of 1973. She recalled in our statement to the court being told to leave at short notice, boarding a ship in the dark in terrible conditions. We were like animals and slaves in that ship, she told the judges of the international court just a couple of years ago how terrible i'm sure everyone felt that a descendant of enslaved people was describing her own treatment as though she too was enslaved the british government defended itself it offered words of apology apology for its shameful actions but nothing more the british arguments failed the court determined the separation of chagos was unlawful that chagos was and had always been a part of Mauritius and still is today. In May 2019, the General Assembly adopted the opinion and ordered the United Kingdom to leave Chagos by November 2019. It recognised the right of the Chagossians to return. After the vote at the General Assembly, which Britain lost, as the New York Times put it, in an embarrassing fashion, the British ambassador took the floor and she dissembled. Britain remained committed to self-determination, she said, if not for Mauritius or the Chagossians, then most certainly for the inhabitants of another distant colonial possession. In her words, as she said, no dialogue on sovereignty until the Falkland Islanders so wish. And as I listened to her, I thought, what is the difference between the 2000 Falkland Islanders, the Islanders of the Malvinas, entitled to the right of self-determination and the 2000 Chagossians who are not. There is no escape from the one obvious distinguishing feature of the two communities. One community is white, the other community is black. And having just watched the last wonderful panel in this conference, I have to say, listening to what the Biden administration is doing and what it might yet do, the Biden administration has the power to allow the Chagossians to return. And I hope each of you will take up this point, and the American society too, and put it on its agenda. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the ambassador at the UN, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, Kamala Harris, they can all make it happen if they want to make it happen. Over the years, I've come to know Lisby-Élysée. We've become friends. Sometimes I ask her about the compensation that she was paid, the reparation for being forcibly removed. And she mentions embarrassingly small amounts, 7,590 rupees in 1978, 10,000 more in 82, 3,000 more in 83, 36,000 more in 84. That's it. What's the sum in British pound sterling? 3,600, about $5,000. The compensation for the loss of a home, a livelihood, a life, and no compensation was ever paid to any member of her family, for the enslavement of her ancestors. But compensation was paid to those who owned her enslaved forebears, when slavery was prohibited on the islands of Chagos by the British. Sometime around 1830, about 865 pounds, six shillings and ninepence that's about 60,000 pounds, nearly 100,000 dollars in today's currency, was paid to a Louis-Jean-Baptiste Bayou, for the loss of 28 enslaved persons he owned on Diego Garcia, the largest Chagossian island. Many of you will know it today as the location of a major U.S. military base. On the same island in 1837, 46 pounds, 19 shillings and nine points, about 3,000 pounds today, was paid to Adele Garot for the liberation of a single enslaved person. And £1,584, that's over £100,000, $150,000 today, was paid to an Ozil Majastre for the loss of 52 enslaved persons. Many thousands of others were paid compensation for the loss of enslaved persons. And the benefits of those payments continue to accrue to this day. One such person is Richard Drax, a Conservative member of the Westminster Parliament. For the constituency of South Dorset in England. He's a multimillionaire. He's inherited various properties, including the 250-hectare Drax Hall sugar plantation in Barbados. The CARICOM Reparations Commission has described the plantation as a killing field and a crime scene, a place where tens of thousands of enslaved African persons died in terrible conditions between 1640 and 1836 the Commission has made demands for reparations, so far without success. This plantation made the Drax's family's fortune and no doubt has assisted successive generations of the Drax family to be able to represent Dorset in the British Parliament. Curiously, Mr Drax's voting record doesn't appear to reflect a particular inclination to take account of his own past or to promote laws on equality and human rights. Just a few years ago, he voted to end the obligation of the United Kingdom Commission for Equality and Human Rights to develop a society in which people's ability to achieve their potential is not limited by discrimination. In 1998, he voted to repeal the Human Rights Act. In the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests last year, he published an editorial in his local newspaper, the Dorset Echo, deploring the wave of intolerance that supposedly swept Britain following the abhorrent killing of George Floyd. The need to respect issues of discrimination, he wrote, must not undermine our way of life. Madame Elise of Chagos and Mr. Drax of Dorset have rather different ways of life. She has not benefited from any reparation in relation to her forebears' enslavement. Meanwhile, he benefits not only from the accrued wealth through slave labor, but also from the substantial sum, nearly £300,000 in today's values, That his family was paid as reparation for the loss of 189 enslaved persons back in 1836. This reality reflects the lives of many others. In Britain, where I live and from where I'm speaking this evening, nearly half of all Afro-Caribbean families live in poverty, compared with one in five white households. Young black men in Britain are twice as likely as other people to die from the use of force by police officers. Yet as recently as March 2021, just a few weeks ago, the report of the United Kingdom government's Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, commissioned by this Conservative government, simply glossed over these disparities. The preface, written by its chair, asserted that the British experience, and I say this with deep embarrassment, and I quote, speaks to the slave period not only being about profit and suffering, but how culturally African people transform themselves into a remodeled African Britain, end of quote. In a way, the history of Drax family mirrors a larger narrative of how enslavement led to an intergenerational transmission of unjust enrichment and unjust impoverishment, one that has lasted over two centuries and has been facilitated by consensus in some parts of society to accept inequity as a given unsurprisingly such factors have perpetuated social hierarchies along racial lines in the u.s data from historical census records indicates that white populations in places that relied more heavily on slave labor experienced better social and economic outcomes than white population in places that relied less on slave labor another study combining census data with sociological surveys reports that whites who live in counties which had high concentrations of slaves in 1860, tend to be more conservative and express colder feelings towards African-Americans than whites who live elsewhere in the American South still today. It may be reasonable to conclude that dismantling the legal apparatus of slavery has not eliminated the racial attitudes that accompany, justify, and solidify what one academic has called the unjust, deeply institutionalized, ongoing intergenerational reproduction of whites' wealth, power, and privilege. As many of you will know, these matters are addressed in the literature. Books like The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander's remarkable work on racial discrimination's impact on mass incarceration. With increasing recognition of the extent to which such systemic racism is rooted in historic enslavement, calls for redress understandably grow louder. There have been attempts at reparation, whether monetary or symbolic, in many countries over the years, but with only limited success. In 1865, during the American Civil War, a wartime order indicated that all freed slaves would be compensated with 40 acres and a mule, but that was later reversed. The idea of reparations was raised at the 2001 UN World Conference Against Racism in Durban, but it was left out of the final declaration. That merely noted that I quote, the transatlantic slave trade was among the major sources and manifestations of racism, racial discrimination, but no remedy was broached. Mauritius itself constituted a truth and justice commission in 2009 to make an assessment of the consequences of slavery and indenture labor during the colonial period up to the present. That government's commission recommended the government seek funding from historical slave trading nations such as the United Kingdom and France, for the rehabilitation and reconstruction of communities and settlements where slave descendants are in the majority. But those recommendations are yet to be acted upon. Historic injustices on this scale across continents, affecting hundreds of millions of human beings, are too complex to be dealt with by the institutions of any single country. The UN Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Racism, Professor Tendai Achume, And what a pleasure it has been to just listen to you just now, Professor, observed in her 2019 report that slavery and colonialism were global projects and reparations for both require global intervention. But UN member states should create a platform devoted to the serious consideration of reparations. Such an international platform would serve the useful function of offering a historic record, clarifying what happened and what have been the consequences And it could also reach factual and then legal conclusions as to how those consequences might best be addressed. A Global Truth and Reconciliation Commission could be one way to address this need. Such commissions are grounded in law, but unlike adjudicatory bodies, may walk the intersecting lines of law, justice and reconciliation. Another alternative mechanism could be an international fact-finding mission like the recent UN investigative mechanism on Myanmar which could offer assistance to bodies like the International Court of Justice or the Permanent Court of Arbitration. I'm counsel for the Gambia in the case against Myanmar involving the mistreatment of the Rohingya. And but for that, reports of the UN investigative mechanism, it would have been much more difficult to mount a case. Whatever path is taken, seems to me that three factors at least are going to have to be addressed. And I suppose I'm speaking here in part as an international litigator, First, it will be necessary to establish a causal link between historic enslavement and contemporary racism. Second, it will be necessary to tie such a causal connection to a violation of international law, giving rise to an obligation to make reparation, irrespective of whether the original act, enslavement, was internationally unlawful when it occurred. And third, to the extent that a legal obligation arises, it will be necessary to determine Whom, To whom, from whom, and in what manner reparations might fall to be paid. Some will say that existing international legal principles are inadequate to deal with the challenges. Law is insufficiently decolonized, imaginative or robust. I disagree. The law does offer a route. The question is more one of a political will. And it's to these points that I now turn. So let's begin with the question, the key question of causality. Is there a link between historic enslavement and contemporary racism? The Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which oversees the implementation of the 1965 convention, considers that there is. It's General Recommendation 34 noted that racism and structural discrimination against people of African descent rooted in the infamous regime of slavery are evident in the situations of inequality affecting them. The committee's conclusion is consistent with the view of the working group of experts on people of African descent, which has made annual visits to many multiracial countries that were involved in enslavement or the transatlantic slave trade. In the report from its most recent country visit, for example, Peru, the working group has noted the significant decline in the socioeconomic status of Afro-Peruvians, despite broader economic developments in that country. Such conclusions indicate a connection between historic enslavement and contemporary racism. So let's reflect on various aspects of that connection. How does one begin to identify the indicia of causality? Let's start with money and wealth. One noticeable disparity between the descendants of the enslaved and those of slave owners is, of course, in relation to wealth. The Drax family's current wealth is constructed on the foundations of the unpaid and later on underpaid labor of persons of African descent. The intergenerational wealth benefits to white communities can also be indirect. In the US, demographic projections indicate that millions of white Americans are descendants of those whites who received millions of acres of public lands allocated by the government during the era of slavery. Even after the abolition of slavery, extensive racial exclusion and violence directed at African Americans meant almost all who gained access to the wealth-generating resource that is land were white. Numerous studies suggest that nearly 50 million white Americans may be descendants of families who benefited in this way. Relatedly, racially restrictive covenants of the early 20th century barred the sale of property to African Americans. This, coupled with predatory lending practices and redlining, effectively denied property ownership to black communities. There are other ways, too, in which white communities limited the ability of black communities to retain property and pass it on to future generations. Just a few weeks ago, I listened to a remarkable episode of Unfinished Deep South, a very affecting podcast, I have to say, that tells the story of Isidore Banks, a wealthy African-American farmer who was lynched in 1954. Mr. Banks had owned more than a 1,000 acres of land along the Arkansas Delta until his rights disappeared immediately in the period following his death. Similarly, there's plenty of evidence that in other countries, such as Brazil and Peru, the inability to obtain official titles to land has resulted in generational losses of property owned by Black communities. Far from being ameliorated, there's ample academic research to suggest that these and other historic financial disadvantages have been entrenched and deepened by current economic policies. As one writer has put it in relation to matters monetary, the real legacy of slavery is not black deficits, but white racism. A turn to slavery and health. Access to health care is another indicator of racial disparities. Access to preventative health care has long been shown to be linked to social class leading to higher morbidity rates among Black populations. Even independent of income, race can have a devastating impact on the quality of diagnosis and treatment. Studies show that a slavery era stereotype of Black people's supposed higher pain threshold is associated with under treatment for pain, and that this may be one of the causes of higher Black maternal mortality rates in the United States. Incredibly, as recently as 2016, A study by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences reported that 29% of white first-year American medical students thought that black people's blood coagulates more quickly than white people's, and 21% believed that black people have stronger immune systems. The academy found a link between such misperceptions and inadequate preventive care and inferior treatment. And of course, not surprisingly, in these difficult times, the current COVID-19 crisis appears to have had a disproportionately negative impact on black communities. In its 2020 report, the UN Working Group of Experts notes that measures have not been taken to counteract the foreseeable risk to persons of African descent, despite existing inequalities in health. At this point, the data remains limited, but where available, it is deeply troubling. In the US, African Americans have experienced triple the rate of infection and nearly five times the rate of hospitalization and twice the rate of death compared with white Americans. In the United Kingdom, people of African descent were at least four times, four times, more likely to die of COVID-19 than white people. In both countries, triaging and do not resuscitate orders are said to have been inappropriately used in the case of people of African descent. Again, to slavery and trauma, In addition to physical health, there is growing evidence as to the psychological and mental health impacts of living through racism. Intergenerational trauma is a subject I'm keenly interested in. I opened my book East West Street with a quote from two Hungarian psychoanalysts, Maria Torok and Nicholas Abraham. What haunts, they wrote, are not the dead, but the gaps left within us by the secrets of others. And I think these words are equally pertinent to the subject of this important conference. Psychological studies have confirmed that experiencing or witnessing racial discrimination or violence causes trauma and anxiety disorders. Recent research is showing that such trauma can also affect descendants of those who experience the event firsthand at a psychobiological level. Domestic violence victims, Holocaust survivors and descendants of the enslaved are groups in which transgenerational effects are beginning to be understood. Epigenetics, the study of how behavior and environment can cause changes that affect the way our genes work, is also a growing field. And there's scientific evidence to suggest that poor conditions and stress, especially prenatal stress, endured by enslaved people may have had an impact on their bodies and those of their children, inherited in turn by their descendants today. To avoid engagement with the consequences of trauma is to risk generations of Black people paying the physical and mental health price for the ill-treatment of their forebears. In terms of slavery and justice, in recent years, much attention has been given to the evidence that Black people face significantly harsher outcomes in the criminal justice system of most multiracial countries. This is described, as I've already mentioned, in Alexander's The New Jim Crow. Despite a justice system that is supposed to be colorblind, African-Americans disproportionately find themselves in prison and later as ex-offenders with a restricted access to social welfare and even the right to vote. In Alexander's words, mass incarceration in the United States acts as a comprehensive and well-disguised system of racialized social control that functions in a manner strikingly similar to Jim Crow. Slavery era stereotypes of criminality and aggression often lurk behind profiling and custodial violence suffered by black individuals at the hands of law enforcement, one need only think of George Floyd, and inform heightened degrees of guilt and harsher sentences. The situation recalls the state-sponsored violence and unfair judicial practices that controlled enslaved populations and in due course victimized black communities after enslavement's formal end. The legacy of slavery appears also to have influenced education, as in the case of my own schooling. It's plain that the educational curriculum in many modern multiracial nations fails adequately to address these countries' role in colonization, enslavement and the slave trade, or the impacts on persons of African descent. Equally, textbooks fail to mention black achievements and contribution to the modern nation. This is in some cases made worse by the perpetuation of certain racial stereotypes. In some countries, schools still recapitulate colonial propaganda, such as, for instance, the suggestion in Belgian school textbooks that economic development came to Africa as a result of colonization. That's a quote. Such discourse undoubtedly plays a part in encouraging notions of white superiority. The UN working group of experts on the people of African descent has noted that explicit racial discrimination and the use of colonial era slurs continue to traumatize young black students at schools with serious implications on learning. Stereotypes about black students' scholastic ability leads to discriminatory assessments and poor quality career and higher education guidance. The Working group notes that their consequent underperformance in tests is not scrutinized in the same way as if a test eliminated most or all white students from consideration. By way of conclusion, this brief review underscores some of the myriad ways in which a truth and reconciliation commission or process, or maybe a judicial body, could assess the legacies of slavery as a matter of fact-finding, as reflected in the systemic racism of contemporary institutions. Establishing this causal link is a necessary prerequisite to allowing inquiry to progress to the next question. And that is to what extent it's arguable that contemporary racism rooted in historic enslavement might be said to give rise to a violation of international law. The prohibition of racial discrimination is deeply etched into international law today. Article 1-3 of the UN Charter calls for respect for human rights and for fundamental freedoms for all without distinction as to race. Articles four and seven of the universal declaration of human rights, reinforce the prohibition of slavery and discrimination. The international covenant on civil and political rights and on economic and social rights affirm that human rights obligations must be undertaken without discrimination on the basis of race. And of course, we have the convention for the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination. Arguably the conditions of life created and perpetuated by systemic racism violate other human rights. Disproportionate rates of detention and custodial injury of black people and countless instances of excessive force used by law enforcement may be said to violate the right to life and prohibitions on torture or arbitrary detention, as well as the right to equality before courts, all rights guaranteed by the ICCPR and in my view by general international law. Systemic racism has resulted in deep-rooted social inequalities that violate other rights including the right to work adequate standards of living physical and mental health and education all guaranteed by the ICESCR. two centuries nearly have passed since the abolition of slavery yet there remains a persistent gap in the degree to which these social and economic rights have been realized for so many of african descent but in trying to bring contemporary racism within the scope of international law we have to recognize that certain challenges exist. To grasp the gravity and the scale of these offenses and ensure commensurate reparations, it's necessary to see them in their transgenerational context as the legacy of historic enslavement. The intertemporality of such a claim to reparation does give rise to challenges. Can today's consequences of historic acts in relation to enslavement engage a liability for reparation? irrespective of whether the original act was unlawful at the time of its occurrence. The conventional view holds that the international consensus against slavery emerged only in the 19th century, leading to a rule of customary law by about 1885. In the 20th century, the prohibition has come to be recognized as just Kobens. And thus for a large part of the period during which transatlantic slavery took place, It was not explicitly unlawful at national or international levels. And judges faced with the issue will have to address whether the later consequences of enslavement in the form of systemic racism can be considered to violate international law. A number of considerations may here be pertinent. To begin, there continues to be discussion as to whether the norm against slavery might have emerged in international law even before its formal establishment in all countries. One view posits that although not yet a rule of custom, transatlantic slavery violated general principles of international law as derived from the vast majority of national, regional and communitarian legal systems of the period. But that view is not widely shared. Nevertheless, I do not believe that international law entirely discounts the possibility of legal accountability for the illegal consequences today of long ago acts that may have been lawful. A truth commission or court facing the issue of reparations may view enslavement and consequent systemic racism as a continuing violation of international law. The key factor distinguishing this claim for reparations is that neither the wrongful act itself nor its harmful consequences are discrete events that occurred or were completed at some moment in the past. If contemporary racism is indeed a direct legacy of enslavement, the wrong itself may be said to continue long beyond the date of its formal abolition. If its impact on the lives of black people is indeed reinforced with every passing generation, it appears that the consequences continue to be felt to this day. Article 14 of the ILC's Articles on the Responsibility of States for Internationally Wrongful Acts, recognised by the General Assembly to be reflective of custom, states that the breach of an international obligation requiring a state to prevent a given event occurs when the event occurs and extends over the entire period during which the event occurs, continues and remains not in conformity with that obligation. An example of such continuing wrong is stated as being the maintenance in effect of legislation incompatible with the state's international obligations. While these ILC articles don't directly address the implication when the event commences, prior to the coming to force of the rule against it, national and international courts have considered the matter. In 1999, for example, in the case of Senator Pinochet, I was involved in proceedings before the English courts premised on the continuing consequences, disappearance as an act of torture, of acts originally occurring before they had been internationally criminalized, or in respect of which the court's jurisdiction only arose at a much later date. The Special Court for Sierra Leone prosecuted crimes of forced marriage, despite the incidents having initially occurred prior to the time period covered by the court's statute, as they were continuing crimes ongoing during the indictment period. That court similarly prosecuted the recruitment and training of child soldiers that had commenced in 1991, even though it considered this prohibition to have definitively crystallized into an international crime only by 1996 due to the fact that the crimes had continued into the relevant and current period. The extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia, too, in prosecuting a joint criminal enterprise, considered certain acts of planning and devising that occurred prior to the beginning of its temporal jurisdiction, since it concluded it would be unnatural to break up such a protracted and complex transaction as it is only intelligible, if all of its components are considered together. And of course, having written East West Street, I often think about Hans Frank, who was Adolf Hitler's personal lawyer from 1928 to 1933, as he sat in the dock 75 years ago and was presented with his indictment for crimes against humanity and genocide in relation to acts in which he was involved between 33 and 45. Those two crimes were only invented in 1945. In a similar vein, an adjudicating body could address systemic racism rooted in enslavement, irrespective of having originated prior to formal legal prohibitions against enslavement, in my view. Moreover, I think there may exist a moral imperative compelling states to agree upon the retroactive application of contemporary international law to cover the present day consequences of an act such as this, which, irrespective of its legality at the time, shocks the conscience today. That's sort of the Nuremberg principle. In international law, the rule against retroactivity cannot be said to have been applied with absolute consistency in the face of acts considered to be of serious scale and gravity. Nuremberg and the tribunals for the ex-Yugoslavia and Rwanda were all created after the fact and prosecuted mass atrocities on the basis of statutes codified after the occurrence of these crimes. Slavery has been perceived as a crime of similar gravity, at least from the 20th century onwards. In 1933, for instance, Raphael Lemkin, a remarkable Polish lawyer who coined the term genocide, sought to establish its gravity by likening to slavery, as an offence universally punishable due to humane principles. And of course, more recently, slavery has been characterised as a crime against humanity. The emphasis in adjudicating such crimes has been as much upon a doctrinal basis in law as upon a growing moral consensus against the acts that occurred and possibly also their continuing effects. As Henry Simpson, the then US Secretary of War, put it, the Nuremberg Tribunal's coming into being was not a trick of the law. It was the massed, angered forces of common humanity. The 1975 resolution of the Institut de droit international on intertemporality confirmed that states have the power to determine by common consent the temporal sphere of application of norms. If there is a political will to mobilize the law, to address the transgenerational consequences of enslavement in the form of contemporary systemic racism, there should also be a way to do it. Even if a court or truth commission were to find the intertemporal issue difficult to surmount, there is always, of course, the doctrine of unjust enrichment, Mr. Drax, which exists in many domestic legal systems and is considered by some to be a general principle of international law. This too can offer another avenue. The principle applies where conduct may not be internationally wrongful as such, but nevertheless leads to one entity being enriched at another's expense in a way that the law regards as unjust. Restoring a part of the continuing unjust gains of the beneficiaries of slavery and systemic racism, as quantified by reference, for example, to contemporary racial wage gaps, or historical profits, may restore some disadvantages, even if more comprehensive moral reparations remain lacking. This is, however, an incomplete solution, and there is the danger, as some have noted, that it would reduce the grossest of human right violations to an outstanding bill for services. For this reason, perhaps, the approach ought only to be entertained in conjunction with the other approaches to the resolution of historic and continuing injustices. Turn to the third part of my analysis. If a truth, commission or court were to find that a breach of international law had occurred, it would have to address this third element, namely the nature of reparations owed. Under custom international law, it's long established that where an illegal act occurs, a right to reparations follows. In 1928, the Permanent Court of International Justice made clear that reparation must as far as possible wipe out all the consequences of the illegal act and reestablish the situation, which would in all probability have existed if that act had not been committed. The codification of the law of state responsibility adopts this approach, allowing reparation to encompass restitution, compensation and satisfaction in the form of an acknowledgement of the breach, an expression of regret, a formal apology. To this, the UN basic principles and guidelines On the right to a remedy and reparation for victims of gross violations of international human rights law adds to best practice some form of rehabilitation. And so far as restitution is concerned, the long-running and continuing nature of the harms makes it difficult to envisage the situation that would have existed but for the practice of enslavement and consequent systemic racism. The first step may involve institutional reform within multiracial nations to account for the needs of African descent populations with specific attention to issues like social welfare and reform of laws to make them fit for purpose by undoing the legacies of historical racial discrimination. In Britain, in the kind discussions of Windrush, this is a very real issue right now. And it may also be necessary for these states to actively counteract racial stereotyping and ensure that public discourse regarding the history of enslavement and colonization is more complete and accurate. Allocating funds for research, bias training, awareness programs could go some way towards achieving these ends. I've read with interest the CARICOM 10 point plan for reparatory justice, which sets out a number of ideas for the steps that former slave trading nations may be required to take. It calls for European governments whose nations were responsible for enslavement and a further 100 years of racial apartheid to invest in health, education, technology and cultural institutions of the Caribbean countries to which they forcibly transported the enslaved. In addition, states may find themselves in the position of having to pay compensation to their African descent population for the extent of injuries that restitution cannot repair. which could be proportionate to the current wage gap between white and black populations, a gap that was estimated at $154,000 per year, between median black and white families in the United States in 2016. And it may also be necessary to compensate black people for the costs attached to being the targets of racial oppression, including the dramatic loss of time and energy from having to cope with discrimination, damage to health and harm to families and communities over the course of generations. Institutional reform and monetary compensation can never fully account for the lived experience of racism and disadvantage. States will also surely be called upon to consider principles of rehabilitation for the descendants of enslaved communities. For instance, the provision of medical and psychological care, as well as legal and social services to help combat the extensive mental health impacts of racial discrimination. And finally, it will surely be necessary to offer some formal manner of recognition or apology, for the continuing scourge of contemporary racism and the fact of it's being linked to historic enslavement. So I turn to some brief conclusions. The path to reparations is long and it undulates. Most countries have done little to engage with their own historic wrongs or their continuing effects in our times. External prompting is needed, including by international efforts, to place a spotlight on past wrongdoings. I think in this way, international law can and does have an important role to play. This is particularly the case in my own country, Britain, as its colonial past continues to haunt, with greater focus placed on the country's role in the abolition of slavery than in its application over centuries. The toppling last year in June of a statue of Edward Colston, merchant, philanthropist, Tory parliamentarian, owner of the enslaved, and its dumping into the harbour of the city of Bristol is seen by many as marking a possible turning point. But of course, the event has given rise to a backlash, including in the recent report on racism commissioned by the British government and published in March 2021, which I mentioned at the beginning. The report seeks to highlight the immigrant optimism, as it puts it, of some new African communities, in contrast to their Caribbean peers, who are said to sit in the same classrooms, offering proof, it is said that it is, and I quote, difficult to blame racism in education for the latter's underachievement, end of of quote. For the writers of this report, it is anathema to suggest that modern racism is somehow connected to the legacy of enslavement. Instead, this recent report opts to focus on geography, family influence, socioeconomic background, culture and religion as having more significant impacts on life chances than the existence of racism. And it might be said, anything but a reference to enslavement. This stands in stark contrast to data from international bodies and the lived experiences of generations of Black people. In relation to the subject I'm addressing, its striking slavery gets just one mention in the report, and that is only in the preface. That is the terrible line by Dr. Tony Sewell that I mentioned at the beginning. His line has drawn in recent weeks, since it was published, extensive critical comment, and it has unleashed in Britain a backlash against the backlash, forcing Dr. Sewell to offer a clarification, a footnote, in which he explains that his intention was simply to indicate but in the face of the inhumanity of slavery, African people preserved their humanity and culture. But the report is totally silent, totally silent on slavery's impact on life today. And that silence, as I read it, caused me to reflect once more on the life of my friend, Liz B. Elysee and her fellow Chagossians. As they wait to return to their homes on the Chagos archipelago, a matter of when, rather than if, in my view, as the British government refuses to recognize decisions by international courts and the UN, they may not be immediately aware of these distant tales of past wrong. They have, after all, more recent and continuing injustices to contend with. Seen in a broader perspective, however, their treatment, informed by the gross mistreatment of their forebears, is surely inseparable from the long chain of events that led up to it. That is my clear view. Ancestors were forcibly transported to Chagos as slaves. None received reparation for their enslavement, even as their white slave owners were compensated for the loss of their properties. The symmetry is a bleak one, a Chagossian community that was forcibly removed from homes, followed by the payment of meager compensation as their lands were repurposed for Western defence purposes. And yet, as ever more thought is given to the subject of this conference, which seems to me so very timely, new possibilities do emerge with international law potentially playing a pivotal role. Ten years ago, when I first started to work on the Chagos case, I remember a meeting at the US Department of State when I was told by decent folk that legal arguments that I and Mauritius were hoping to make were hopeless. It turned out that they were not hopeless. They were right and they succeeded with the judges of the international court, including Judge Robinson. Nor are they in relation to the identification of a causal link between the conditions of today and the crimes of the past or the capacity of international law to find a means to build a bridge between the two and to offer a new and more just path forward. I don't think international law is hopeless. We just have to keep plowing on. Can I finish by thanking my young colleague Ashrutha Ray for her fantastic assistance to me in uh, writing this paper and to thank you all for your very kind attention. It's late on a Friday night in London, although I know it's only mid-afternoon in Jamaica and boy, do I wish I was with you in Jamaica. Thank you so much for listening.
1: Thank you so much, Professor Sands, for that thought-provoking address. Truly wonderful and thank you so much. We are going to move to a brief break. We're going to take five minutes and we'll meet back here at 17 uh, past the hour. We will hear concluding uh, remarks and final observations from Judge Patrick Robinson. Thank you again for that address and thank all of you as well for being here with us. See you shortly. Go ahead, Natalie.
3: Greetings once again to everyone joining us for the final session in our two-day symposium on reparations under international law for the enslavement of African persons in the Americas and in the Caribbean. It is my great pleasure to introduce, once again, Judge Patrick Robinson, an extremely distinguished international jurist by any measure. He is a pioneer, a model, and a mentor for generations of international lawyers from the Caribbean, like me, and lawyers of African descent around the world. Judge Robinson is currently serving his second consecutive term as Honorary President of the American Society of International Law. It is in this capacity that he has conceived of and convened and driven this symposium, drawing together scholars and practitioners from practically every continent to join in these two days of analysis, debate, and discussion. It is therefore only fitting that our final presenter will be Judge Robinson himself. First, we will hear Judge Robinson's substantive presentation entitled The Ascertainment of a Rule of International Law Condemning Transatlantic Chattel Slavery, in which he will set out his reaction to the statement in Oppenheim's International Law that at the beginning of the 19th century, customary international law did not condemn slavery and the slave trade, and his view that in his submission, on the contrary, there was in fact a rule of international law condemning transatlantic chattel slavery throughout the entire period. Proceeding and into the 19th century. Judge Robinson will then close the symposium with final remarks. So uh, with pleasure and uh, recognition of the privilege of having played a role in organizing this symposium that, as uh, ASIL President Catherine Amerfar said at the outset, has been the brainchild of Judge Robinson, I pass the mic to you, Judge Robinson, and give you the floor.
4: Thank you very much, uh, Natalie. Ladies and gentlemen, the well-known eighth and ninth editions of Oppenheim's International Law, volume one, Peace, address the question whether customary international law condemned slavery. The ninth edition corrects the omission in the eighth of a reference to the historical period to which its conclusion relates and this is what the eighth edition said it was difficult to say that customary international law condemns the institution of slavery and the traffic in slaves the time dimension is of the greatest importance in an analysis of the wrongfulness of transatlantic chattel slavery notwithstanding the correction Oppenheim's analysis in the ninth edition is cursory and lacking in depth the ninth edition simply states that and i quote at the beginning of the 19th century customary international law did not condemn the institution of slavery, and the traffic in slaves. It arrives at this conclusion without carrying out any examination of state practice prior to the beginning of the 19th century. Such an examination is necessary if one is to determine whether customary international law condemned slavery whether at the beginning of the 19th century or indeed at any other time. Ladies and gentlemen, the first task in examining whether customary international law condemned slavery at the beginning of the 19th century is to isolate precisely the subject matter of the inquiry. The concern is not with slavery, simpliciter, but rather with transatlantic chattel slavery. It is the chattelization of West Africans through transatlantic slavery that is the subject matter of the inquiry. The failure to distinguish transatlantic chattel slavery from other forms of slavery undermines the conclusion arrived at by the ninth edition. The incidents of transatlantic cattle slavery, which stripped West Africans of their personhood, were as unknown to West Africa as they were to England. Indeed, it is very likely that they did not exist in Europe. Now, there were many forms of servile labor in Europe and in West Africa, but they did not rise to the level of transatlantic chattel slavery, which was different, not only in degree, but in kind. In the early days of chattel slavery, and even before that time, there existed the practice that a person captured in battle became a slave of the victor. And for this, you can see the submission of counsel Mr. Wallace um, in the Somerset Judgment, that I will refer to later, he said, the right of a conqueror was absolute in England and in Africa. That kind of slavery was totally different from transatlantic slavery. Although the view has been expressed that the Ottoman Empire had a system of chattel slavery,
1: State slaves
4: often occupied positions of great eminence. Thus, the Turkish Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, the legislator, made Ibrahim Pasha, who had been captured and was a state slave, the Grand Vizier, rather like a Prime Minister of the Ottoman Empire, after he had converted from Christianity to Islam. Other slaves in the Ottoman Empire worked in several areas of national life such as trade and agriculture and were treated more like serfs. And as Nora Whitman has stated in her paper, servile labor was also akin. Servile labor in Africa was also akin to serfdom in Europe. And I cannot resist telling you this little story from Nora's paper, which illustrates the difference between African slave society and transatlantic chattel slavery. A master requested the Banamba in Mali to provide him with millet. The elder spokesman of the Banamba slave told the master that the millet belonged to them saying, we will not sell it today. We have given you the part that belongs to you because you are our master. But you shall not get more until the next harvest. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot imagine any enslaved person in the Americas or the Caribbean daring to address a slave owner in that way. Now, the ninth edition would have to be clear as to what constituted the international wrong of transatlantic chattel slavery. The essential feature of a chattel is that it is movable property in contradistinction to land or other forms of real property. And the movability of West Africans was very evident in the process of their chattelization that had six phases they were transported or moved from West Africa against their will to the Americas and the Caribbean, a distance of some 5,000 miles. And it is, the, it is their treatment as property or things that explains why they could be moved about so readily and over such long distances. The chattelization of West Africans through enslavement commenced in West Africa on their capture and sale, followed by their forced trek to and detention in slave castles, their transportation packed like sardines in the hulls of ships for a voyage of thousands of miles to the Americas, their sale as slaves there, and finally their unpaid labor on plantations for years. It may have been a blessing in disguise that the average life of a West African after being sent to work on the plantations was no more than seven years. Ladies and gentlemen, every phase of transatlantic chattel slavery was wrongful conduct. It was not the sale of West Africans in the americas and the caribbean that made them chattel slaves they were chattelized into enslavement upon their capture and sale in west africa and continued to be chattelized through every phase leading to their brutal treatment on the plantations in the americas and the caribbean Had the ninth edition examined state practice, it would have found material on the basis of which it could conclude that chattel slavery was not permitted in England and quite likely also in France and other European countries. Permit me a comment, ladies and gentlemen, on the famous Somerset case decided in 1772 in britain mr somerset was enslaved in virginia to mr stewart mr stewart took him to england he escaped mr somerset was recaptured and mr stewart had him detained on a ship to be transported to jamaica to be sold as a slave With the help of Mr. Granville Sharp and other abolitionists, an application for writ of habeas corpus was filed on behalf of Mr. Somerset. Although it is generally accepted that Chief Justice Mansfield's decision in the Somerset case is difficult to understand, it is at least clear on one matter. The kind of dominion that Mr. Somerset's master sought to exercise over him by detaining him on a ship to be transported to Jamaica for sale as a slave was not permitted in England. Now Chief Justice Mansfield's decision must be confined to the two relatively narrow issues that he faced. Did Mr. Stewart have the right to detain Mr. Somerset on the ship? And secondly, did he have the right to have him forcibly transported to Jamaica to be sold as a slave? The Chief Justice's decision that he did not have that right did not abolish slavery in the British Empire. And although Mr. Somerset was discharged from detention on the basis of the writ of habeas corpus, he remained in the service of Mr. Stewart. But notwithstanding the limited scope of the decision, it is clear from the Chief Justice's reasoning that he was addressing the kind of dominion of a master over slave that only comes with transatlantic chattel slavery. The Chief Justice acknowledged that a contract for the sale of a slave was recognized under English law. But he held that such a contract was not the issue in the case. Rather, he reasoned that the person of the slave himself is immediately the object of the inquiry And that made a material difference. Mr. Stewart, he said, advance is no claim on contract. He rests his whole demand on the right to the Negro as slave. The Chief Justice paid particular attention to the return on the writ, which included the statement that the laws of Jamaica and Virginia authorized the sale of slaves on the basis that they were chattels. So that for the Chief Justice, the only question was whether the cause on the return was sufficient, whether it provided a sufficient basis in English law for the action taken by Mr. Stewart. So in light of the foregoing, it is beyond doubt that when the Chief Justice held that the detention of Mr. Somerset for the purpose of transporting him to Jamaica for sale as a slave constituted an act of dominion not recognized in England, he was talking about the features of transatlantic chattel slavery. And in my view, Somerset's case is also good law for the distinction between slavish servitude that was permitted on English soil and transatlantic chattel slavery that was not permitted. That the wrongfulness of chattel slavery is determined by the law of the place where enslavement occurred finds support in the chief justice's holding that so high an act of dominion must be recognized by the law of the country where it is used. Had the ninth edition examined state practice in West Africa, it would have found that there was no such law in that region. To borrow the well-known mantra from the earlier English case of Cartwright, in which Mr. Cartwright scourged his Russian slave, it may be asserted that just as the English air was too pure for slaves to breathe, so was the West African air in relation to transatlantic chattel slavery. In other words, the West African air was as intolerant of transatlantic chattel slavery as the English air. It is agreed by scholars that Somerset's case was an early conflict of laws case. thus the court was principally concerned with a choice between the law that England applied to Virginia or to Jamaica as colonies, and the law that is applied in the metropole. And admittedly, it was not a public international law case. But one cannot help but notice the total absence in the case of any reference to the place where the transaction leading to Mr. Somerset's enslavement took place, that is, West Africa. Now, ladies and gentlemen, given that England and more than likely other European states did not permit chattel slavery, on their soil, the ninth edition should have examined state practice not only in Africa, but also in other parts of the world, such as Asia, where transatlantic chattel slavery was also unknown and determined whether it was permitted. European practice alone cannot provide a basis for the conclusion that transatlantic chattel slavery was not permitted by customary international law at the beginning of the 19th century. A determination as to whether transatlantic chattel slavery was wrongful under customary international law at the time it was carried out is therefore flawed if it is confined to an examination of European practice. The ninth edition would also have to consider what constitutes evidence of the absence of a law permitting chattel slavery in West Africa? The report of Somets' case shows that the lawyers devoted a lot of attention to the question whether trover, that is an action to recover property taken from its owner, would lie for taking a Negro slave. Now, one cannot be certain whether there was in West Africa a law, custom, or practice that would be equivalent to trover. But, of course, the absence of such a law or custom prohibiting transatlantic chattel slavery in West Africa does not mean that West African law permitted chattel slavery. In the same way that Chief Justice Mansfield established that there was no law in England permitting the kind of dominion through transatlantic chattel slavery that Mr. Stewart sought to exercise over Mr. Somerset. It can equally be established that there was no law in West Africa permitting the kind of dominion exercised by Europeans over West Africans through chattel slavery. And if it is contended that there should be some evidence that in West Africa, those persons involved in the transatlantic slave trade were punished, it should be noted that an international wrong may or may not be a crime. The essence of the wrong is the breach of an international obligation owed to a claimant state. Now, the need to take into account practice other than that of European states in considering the wrongfulness of transatlantic chattel slavery is addressed by Dr. Erpelding in his paper. Noting that African countries did take measures to stop or restrict the slave trade,
1: he argues
4: that such African negative attitudes towards transatlantic chattel slavery might cast doubt on the legality of mass deportations resulting in the depopulation of whole regions he concludes that a broader examination of state practice might show that european regional practice was at variance with the universal law of nations he believes that this question requires further analysis. Ladies and gentlemen, in West Africa, there was strong antipathy and resistance to transatlantic chattel slavery. Yes, there was complicity by West Africans. But the resistance in West Africa the practice of chattel slavery contradicted the argument about complicity the phenomenon of resistance has a special significance Europeans and others argue that West Africans were complicit in transatlantic chattel slavery apparently to suggest that that complicity wiped out any international wrong that was committed by that practice. But as a matter of fact, resistance, the resistance, the very opposite of complicity was intense and unrelenting. The Oba, the king of Benin, 1504 to 1550, actively opposed the capture and enslavement of his people and seized slave ships. One may also refer to the letter of King Alfonso of the Congo in 1526 to his Portuguese counterpart, stating that it is our will that the kingdoms of Congo, in the kingdoms of Congo, There should not be any trade in slaves, nor market for slaves. This resistance to transatlantic chattel slavery became even more pronounced in the reign of King Alvaro of the Congo, 1567-1587. He sent his officials to Lisbon in 1568 to conduct an inquest into illegal portuguese trading in the ports and we also can refer to queen Enzinga of angola 1583 to 1663 during her reign of 37 years she became famous for fighting for fighting portuguese enslavement of her people a statue now stands in her honor in her country in 1720 the king of guinea obstructed European traders, and killed the middlemen who were captured. And evidence can be provided not only of resistance in West Africa, but also in the Middle Passage, in which there were numerous revolts, as well as in the Americans and the Caribbean. There are more slave revolts in Jamaica than in any other British colony, including the Serpene, in what is now the United States of America. And as we know, resistance in Haiti was so strong that in 1804, the French colonial government was overthrown and Haiti became the first black republic. And as Nora Whitman has pointed out in her paper, from the early 16th century on, an African militia patrolled the Gulf of Guinea and attacked European slave vessels. And she states that there was also resistance by various chiefs and kings, and that up to the mid-18th century, not a single year passed without groups of Africans in permanent rebellion, attacking some slave vessel. Now ladies and gentlemen, it is appropriate to cite resistance in countries outside Africa, because transatlantic chattel slavery, as I stated, had several stages including the Middle Passage and forced and free labor in the Americas and the Caribbean. Now, quite apart from the evidence showing resistance from contemporaneous African rulers opposed to to transatlantic chattel slavery, resistance from individual West Africans, whether inside or outside Africa, serves to inform understandings of the practice of the states involved. In sum, the resistance of African rulers and their West African people may be seen as a West African resistance to transatlantic chattel slavery, sufficient not only to rebut the argument about African collaboration, but also to show that that kind of slavery was not permitted in the region. And we have already seen that the practice in the Ottoman Empire, described by some as chattel slavery, bears absolutely no comparison with transatlantic chattel slavery. And so it is safe to assert that the incidence of transatlantic chattel slavery were not only unknown outside the countries of Western Europe and their colonies, but also that they would not have been permitted. It is therefore reasonable to conclude that customary international law did not condone transatlantic chattel slavery. And this conclusion is buttressed by the acknowledgement of the the signatories of the 1815 Vienna Declaration, and here I quote, that the commerce known by the name of slave trade has been considered by just and enlightened men of all ages as repugnant to the principles of humanity and universal morality. Ladies and gentlemen, there was, in my view, running throughout the entire period of transatlantic chattel slavery a strong undercurrent of a normative principle calling for respect of the inherent dignity and worth of the human person and seven years after the vienna declaration one can refer To the reference made by Justice Story in a case before him in the United States. Justice Story said, the slave trade was founded in violation of some of the first principles which ought to govern nations. It is repugnant to the great principles of Christian duty, the dictates of natural religion and the obligations of good faith and morality and the eternal maxims of social justice. Ladies and gentlemen, the breach of that norm by transatlantic chattel slavery does not mean that it did not have a binding character. It may even be that the West African practice could be considered alongside the European regional practice, but the ninth edition never bothered to examine the practice in Europe, in Africa, or elsewhere. It simply proceeds to a more categoric statement than the eighth edition without providing any basis for its more confident posture. The ninth edition, ladies and gentlemen, would have to confront the dichotomous approach of European slaveholding countries to transatlantic chattel slavery. Its features or incidents were not permitted in the metropolitan countries, but were allowed in the colonies. But if the practice of chattel slavery was as a matter of international law, wrongful conduct, a slaveholding state could not invoke its domestic law as justification for its breach of international law. Article 3 of the ILC's Articles on State Responsibility states that the characterization of state conduct as wrongful is governed by international law and that characterization is not affected by the characterization of the same conduct as lawful by domestic law. Now the question arises whether this rule would have been applicable in the period of transatlantic chattel slavery. If that rule is applicable, then the domestic laws of England and other European states that permitted chattel slavery in their colonies, in the Americas and the Caribbean, could not be invoked as justification for breaching what I have argued was a rule of the law of nations condemning chattel slavery. I hold the view that the rule in Article 3 would have been applicable in the period of transatlantic chattel slavery. And I give this as an example. If in 1600, A state had laws that allowed for or condoned the mistreatment of ambassadors in its country, and an ambassador was mistreated. That state could not invoke its domestic law as justification for what would be a breach of one of the oldest rules of customary international law, that is the inviolability of the person of an ambassador. Transatlantic chattel slavery commenced about 1450, when the first West African was transported to the Americas and ended in 1888 when the enslaved in Brazil were emancipated, Emancipated, a period of almost four and a half centuries. The global sweep that is involved in the ninth edition brief analysis is inappropriate for a consideration of the wrongfulness of transatlantic chattel slavery under customary international law. And it seems to me that the contention that that law did not condemn slavery at the beginning of the 19th century must surely require an examination of customary law at various periods. For example, 1450 to 1550, 1550 to 1650, 1650 to 1750, and 1750 to 1888. And so although this symposium does include a presentation that was global in scope, it did have other presentations devoted to an analysis of international law at various periods in transatlantic chattel slavery. In conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, there is evidence that at the beginning of the 19th century, customary international law did condemn the institution of transatlantic chattel slavery. In fact, as the symposium has shown, customary international law condemned the institution of transatlantic chattel slavery from its very beginning. That concludes my presentation on that subject, ladies and gentlemen. And since the organizers have been unkind to me i have present, been presented with a double rule and i must now move with your permission and patience into my closing remarks and i want to begin by saying how grateful i am for all the presentations every presentation was interesting and helpful in understanding transatlantic chattel slavery and explaining why it was conduct that was not permitted by international law at the time it was carried out. The presentations and the discussion were of a very high caliber. My thanks to Professor Hilary Beckles for his two presentations. His global assessment of the reparations that are due for transatlantic chattel slavery will be critically important in the work of the next symposium that will be devoted to an assessment of the reparations due on the international law. Now, the date of that symposium will be announced shortly. So you now know that I have formally told you that there will be another symposium specifically devoted to the assessment of reparations that are due on the international law for transatlantic chattel slavery. And Sir Hillary's presentation on the quantification of reparations shows precisely how difficult it will be to determine reparations that are due under international law. And by the way, his presentation should have been worded, in my view, assessment rather than quantification of reparations. The assessment of reparations will include quantifications, but it will also include As you just heard from Professor Sands, satisfaction, addressed in Article 37 of the ILC's Articles on responsibility of states for internationally wrongful acts. And satisfaction, as you heard, includes an acknowledgement of the breach, an expression of regret, a formal apology, or any other appropriate modality. The former slaveholding countries are to be required to make an apology. So Hillary pointed to one methodology for quantifying reparations that showed that trillions of pounds would be due in excess of the gross domestic, domestic product of the United Kingdom. The extent of the sums due is no doubt mind-boggling. Determining the methodology for reparations will be exceedingly difficult. And Sir Hillary's comments confirm the wisdom of the decision to devote another symposium to the assessment of reparations. The question has been raised, whether reparations will result in the payment of sums of money to individuals as descendants of the Mm -hmm. and i've been asked here in jamaica when jamaicans can expect to see money in their bank accounts perhaps the question was a bit sarcastic Now, Sir Hillary referred to his colleague, historian, Professor William Darity of Duke University in the USA, who has advocated the payment of specific sums of money to the descendants of the enslaved in the USA. I have read Professor Darity's article entitled 40 Acres and a Mule in the 21st Century. I appreciate the article very much. However, I am personally not in favor of reparations taking that form. At any rate, not for the descendants of the enslaved in the Caribbean. Those enslaved and their descendants have suffered immensely from transatlantic chattel slavery in terms of their education, their health, their personal development, and more generally, their economic well-being. The sums resulting from reparations should, in my view, be applied to promote the development of the descendants of the enslaved and the countries in which they live. They should be used to build schools, universities, hospitals, and used in any other way that would promote personal and national development. I do not, of course, rule out the payment of monies in countries where that would be more feasible, like the United States, though I would still believe that the preferred course would be to apply the reparation sums to the development of particular communities that have been adversely affected by the consequences of transatlantic chattel slavery. In Nora Whitman's presentation, she stressed the difference between servile labor and transatlantic chattel slavery. And she pointed to the extent of the resistance to that kind of slavery, which she concluded was unlawful. I found quite interesting Nora's view that transatlantic cattle slavery violated a general principle of law calling for respect of the dignity and humanity of west africans she was bold enough to say that this principle had the status of jus a peremptory norm of general international law from which no derogation is permitted i believe there is merit in nora's argument and if you recall i commented on that issue in my presentation with the rise of positivism in modern international law, there is a tendency to criticize argumentation that has its basis in natural law. My own position, though, is that the fundamental requirement of international human rights law today, that is respect for the inherent dignity and worth of the human person, that is reflected in the 1948 universal declaration on human rights and so many other instruments can be traced back to an era even before the commencement of transatlantic chattel slavery. It finds expression in the common law, in the law of European countries such as France, we are in general the position that once a slave reached France he became free because France was the mother of freedom. That principle reflected in the law of Britain, France and other slaveholding countries was breached by transatlantic chattel slavery. The breach identifies the existence of the principle and does not detract from its validity, and that is why I believe there is merit in Noah's argument. In the period-by-period analysis, we heard from Dr. Mamadou Hebe, who showed very clearly in my view that the just war doctrine did not provide a basis for transatlantic Catholic slavery in the period between 1450 to 1550. And Parvasi Menon, who addressed the period between 1550 and 1815, stressed that European law was not universal, and she also adverted to the resistance to transatlantic chattel slavery. Dr. Michel Erpelding provided an insightful and stimulating analysis of transatlantic chattel slavery in the period from the Vienna Congress of 1815 to 1888. And we all have to be grateful to Dr. Professor Patricia Sellers for her presentation on sexualized practices and institutions in the slave trade and slavery. And she is so right that reparations must take account of the harm to women and their families resulting from these practices. The significance of her presentation is that it showed that reparations must in no way be confined to the forced and free labor of West Africans on the plantations. Ladies and gentlemen, the largest black population in the world, outside Africa, is to be found in Brazil. And the symposium would not have been complete without hearing from Mr. Adami. He highlighted the problems faced by blacks in securing reparations. And he preferred to speak of black slavery. And I understand it shows how racialized chattel slavery was. I like very much his rousing call at the end. Let's make the ground tremble. So may I say to all of you, let's make the ground tremble with the cry for reparations. Professor Claudio Grossman my former colleague on the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, also gave a stimulating presentation that will be helpful in crafting remedies for transatlantic chattel slavery. I am especially grateful for the presentations on contemporary dimensions of transatlantic chattel slavery, the present-day consequences of which stare us daily in the face. Professor Ashiyumi addressed reparations for racial discrimination rooted in colonialism and slavery. And she also showed that the conclusion that transatlantic chattel slavery violated a rule of international law, did not breach the intertemporal rule, which requires that the breach be established on the basis of law applicable at the time of wrongful conduct. This symposium is indeed very fortunate to have the UN's special rapporteur on the subject of racism, us. Professor Eric Miller's presentation on the relatively recent Tulsa massacre was thoughtful and informative. We will be following closely the court proceedings for reparations for an act that undoubtedly had its roots in the practice of transatlantic champion slavery. Professor Miller referred to his Jamaican family. I am proud to tell you that I am part of that family and to tell him that his grand-aunt, my mother, would have been very proud of the activist role that he is now playing in reparations for the Tulsa Massacre. And we have to be grateful for Professor Philip Sands' wide-ranging, illuminating, and absolutely brilliant presentation on contemporary institutionalized racism as a breach of international human rights law. If you are not convinced before about the link between contemporary institutionalized racism and transatlantic chattel slavery, you would have been after his presentation. I express my gratitude to him. So may I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that as a whole, in my view, the presentations show that at the time of transatlantic chattel slavery, There was a rule of customary international law that that practice was wrongful and entailed the international responsibility of the states that carried it out. And accordingly, reparations are due. Reparations will provide healing. And to pick up on a point made by Professor Sands, May I say that absent absent something like a truth and justice and reconciliation commission in the United States, leading to a national reckoning, followed by reparations for the descendants of those who were enslaved, racial harmony in the United States will remain a far-off and distant dream never to be attained. Further, ladies and gentlemen, may I suggest that we, whether descendants of the enslaved or not, have been handed a secret trust that we must execute and will only execute by staying the course until the struggle for reparations for the grotesque crime of transatlantic chattel slavery has succeeded those of us living in countries where our ancestors were enslaved have a moral obligation to fight for reparations it is a debt that we owe our ancestors. Following the abolition of slavery in the Caribbean, the 13 colonies of Britain in the Americas and in Brazil and other countries, those who were freed endured over a hundred years of apartheid. And so in many respects, although our ancestors, whether enslaved or freed, resisted transatlantic chattel slavery and apartheid, we are the first generation to be in a position to make a strong claim for reparations and to press for it with all our might. We must not be deterred by the naysayers. We must not be cajoled by the frivolous argument that transatlantic chattel slavery should be forgotten because it happened centuries ago the powerful presentations on contemporary racism as a legacy of chattel slavery by professors ashiume and Sands contradict flatly that way of thinking in my view a settlement is needed on the reparations issue. That settlement must, however, proceed on the basis of an acknowledgement that transatlantic chattel slavery was wrongful conduct. The power imbalance between Caribbean countries and former slaveholding countries should not be allowed to stand in the way of the quest for reparations. The power imbalance between slave owners and the enslaved did not prevent them from, as the great Jamaican singer Barry Hammond said, putting up resistance. May I say thanks to all those who have worked so hard to make this symposium the success it has been. May I extend my gratitude to Victoria Mutual Building Society and the GLENA RGR for their sponsorship, and a special thanks to the American Society of International Law for agreeing to my proposal as its honorary president to convene this symposium, and in that regard, thanks to President Amifar, to Natalie Reed, and Professor Shantel Thomas. And thanks also to the University of the West Indies for collaborating with the American Society of International Law. And in that regard, a special thanks to the Vice Chancellor, Sir Hilary Beckles, and Professor Vereen Shepard, for their role in support of the symposium and thanks to all of you who have joined in and finally may i ask you to be on the lookout for the date of the follow-up symposium that will address reparations under international law for transatlantic chattel slavery thank you very much ladies and gentlemen goodbye
0: 18 plus.